Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Democrats' dilemma, Nancy Pelosi blames Republicans as bailout talks falter. Five Jeepers, Apple announces four new phones that are 5G ready. And pressing pause, another COVID vaccine trial halted on safety concerns. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. Welcome back to all our first movers around the globe. We are back with you just in time this Wednesday. Why? Well, a few things, because it's Q3 earnings time for the banks. It's the second day of prime time for Amazon. And I just mentioned there, too, it's 5G time for Apple. Verizon CEO Hans Vestberg will be here to explain the super fast future for the iPhone 12. That's coming up later in the show. We're also watching the ongoing testimony of Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett. We'll go live to Capitol Hill for the latest on that later in the show for you too. For now, time for a look at stocks. The stimulus stalemate contributing to some softness yesterday. And today we look pretty muted. Let's call it that pre-market. We're digesting a whole array of earnings too. You have to be careful this quarter. We are effectively comparing numbers to estimates for Q3 that were created by analysts without much guidance from corporate America last quarter, of course, due to COVID. So that's always going to be the challenge when we're assessing these numbers. But we did get results from US banking giants Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo and Bank of America out before the bell today. Goldman's gets the gold star. Its profits almost doubled, driven by a near 50% rise in bond trading revenues. Meanwhile, uh, Wells Fargo and Bank of America said they will set aside less money for potential bad loans, a positive sign perhaps on the health of the US consumer or that they've simply created enormous reserves already. It follows similar moves by JP Morgan and Citigroup yesterday. JP Morgan still has almost $34 billion to cover losses. That's according to CEO Jamie Dimon, who seemed to take a page from the Powell playbook yesterday, saying a, quote, well-designed stimulus package would increase the chances for a sustainable economic recovery. Time. Clearly not on the side of the Washington negotiators as we head towards that presidential election. Let's get more on this in our drivers. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, I was hoping that while I've been away for a couple of days, there would have been a breakthrough But no, what I do want to talk to you about, Christine, though, is a conversation that our colleague Wolf Blitzer had with the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi yesterday, and it got pretty contentious. Let's just play a little bit of it. There are millions of Americans who have lost their jobs. They can't pay the rent. Their kids need the food. That's right. And that's what we're trying to get done. $1.8 trillion. And the president just tweeted, stimulus, go big or go home. He wants even more right right now. So why not not work out a deal with him and don't let the perfect, as they say here in Washington, be the enemy of the good? Well, I will not let the wrong be the enemy of the right. What's wrong with $1.8 trillion? You know what? Do you have any idea what the difference is between the spending that they have in their bill and that we have in our bill? Do you realize that they have come back and said all these things for child tax credits and earned income tax credits, helping people who have lost their jobs are eliminated in their bill? Christine, it reminds me of a conversation you and I were having last week. 
$1.8 trillion is a lot of money. Yep. It really is. But the president says go big and go home. And Nancy Pelosi, her case is we did go big. We spent $3.4 trillion. The House approved back in May, five months ago exactly. And the Republicans tabled it for many, many, many weeks. And now they're back going over the same old ground again, trying to come to yes. Her point and her accusation there is that Republicans have stripped out some of these really important tax credits that she thinks are very important for uh, child care workers and for child care and for all of the people, the real working families who have been affected so badly uh, by COVID. That HEROES Act really focused in on working people and the people who were, uh, you know, the first responders, health care workers, teachers, uh, state and local government. So they have just a completely different worldview here. And I wonder, the president saying go big or go home, who was he talking to? I mean, uh, on paper, he was talking to uh, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, but it's the Republicans and Senate Republican leadership that have been worried or hearing from some of their membership about going too big. They don't want to spend a lot of money here again after four big tranches have already been um, been doled out. So I think the bottom line here is that a big comprehensive or at least full big relief for American families is not coming until early next year. Yeah, and that's the heartbreaking thing, Christina. You made so many great points in that. We can lambast the the Democrats for seemingly not being willing to do a deal, even a 1.8 trillion deal. I get they wanted three trillion earlier, but something is better than nothing. But I think your point is also a great one. If the Republicans here and many of them are saying, hang on a second, what do you mean $1.8 trillion? We've got no intention of doing anything of that size. Even promising a deal at $1.8 trillion doesn't necessarily mean it's going to come true. I want to bang everybody's heads together. People need (laughs) money. I know they really do. And, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell, the uh, the Speaker of the House, he had, or the, the Senate Majority Leader, he had said maybe we should do just a PPP, a one off provision next week. We can vote on on PPP. And so then you start going back in time again to some of these piecemeal uh, efforts to get money to small business or to uh, to folks who who need a one time payment. And I just don't think politically that's that's possible. We've been over that ground again and again. And I think that a lot of people on Wall Street are starting to assume that there's going to be some big spending in the beginning of the year if you have a a, a presidency that is Joe Biden and uh, the Senate taken over by by the Democrats. Is that going to happen? Who knows if that's going to happen? But at least that's sort of uh, in the back pocket of some people who are hoping that there's going to be some some cash going out uh, to hold up the economy and and, and maybe even infrastructure, too. That is sort of the the (laughs) conventional wisdom now. That can change over the next 20 days. Let me be clear. That can change. But for people right now who are trying to figure out how to pay their bills, I just think this is got to be so frustrating. You know, you mentioned Jamie Dimon. This summer I interviewed him and he was assuming one and a half to two trillion uh, in, in a matter of weeks then to get us to the end of the year. He said that was the stabilizer to the end of the year. It doesn't look like we're going to have that stabilizer. That was the assumption that a lot of people had that there would be a shock absorber, another shock absorber for, for real families. And it doesn't look to me like that's coming right now. Yeah. I mean, the politics is just toxic. I mean, while there are families that are struggling uh, to feed themselves, it's just it's unacceptable. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. You're welcome. We'll sigh. Yeah, thank you. All right, Apple entering the 5G era, introducing four iPhone 12 models, all capable of connecting to much faster 5G networks. Starting prices range from $700 for the Mini to $1,100 for the Pro Max. Dan Ives 
joins us now. He's the Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Dan, always great to have you on. You said this is the most important product cycle in, what, six years since the iPhone 6. It's the start of a super cycle. Did you get what you wanted from this announcement? Yeah, we did. I, I think Cook did not disappoint. In terms of laying out, you know, not, not just iPhone 12 5G, but really a lot of the specs. I think this is enough with a pent-up install base. 40% haven't upgraded their phone in three and a half years within Apple's golden install base. I think that's enough to be a super cycle, which is why I view yesterday a green light to continue to buy the stock. It's great to have a phone with 5G capabilities, but if the network's not there for many people, and there are a lot of analysts saying, look, 5G is going to feel a lot like 4G, quite frankly, for a pretty long time. Does that matter for, for Apple and does that matter for the upgrade cycle that we're talking about and the benefits? Are people willing to buy the phone and just wait? Well, also, if you look at China, that's important. I mean, China, 5G is already ready. That's about 20% of the upgrades that we expect over the next year. If you look in the U.S., it's a work in progress. But I believe in terms of, you know, this sort of transformational, you know, speed highway that we see with 5G, it's going to be enough for called 70, 80% in a window of an upgrade opportunity, you know, to go ahead on iPhone 12. But no doubt, you call it 20 or 30% of the install base will be fence sitters. But I do believe take a step back here. It's a once in a decade upgrade opportunity for Apple, which is why I think you're starting to see more and more optimism on the street. That's quite interesting, Dan, to your point again about how important China is. What are you hearing from some of the Asian suppliers, from Apple themselves? Because that's the best whisper gauge of, of what demand is going to look like and where it's going to be strongest. Yeah, I mean, if I look back the last six to eight weeks, our Asia checks, it's been tick up. I mean, originally it was 65 million units for the launch cycle. Now we're seeing the 75 million, potentially 80. It speaks to pent up demand. And I think ultimately this is going to be an A minus product cycle at a minimum. I think based to best case, it's a super cycle. So I think what you're starting to see here is just global demands there and also scattered price points. You look at this consumer backdrop. You have some lower price points. That's what Apple's doing. It's an iron fence around its install base. And then, of course, the services, which is key to the re-rating of the story. Oh, that's interesting. So what actually, in terms of phone price point versus some of the optionality that you have with that phone, whether it's the camera, whether it's the sensor technology, what do you think is going to see greatest demand? And, and how does that therefore all feed into your price target for Apple? Yeah, it's a great question. I think specifically on iPhone Pro, the 6.1 inch, 6.7, that's where we're seeing the biggest demand in terms of coming out of suppliers. You look at the LiDAR technology, the camera technology, the E14 chip, but it comes down to 5G, and especially in China. Remember, China is the linchpin for this upgrade cycle. Now Apple has a horse in the race. And you look at the U.S., I think this is tip of the sphere. I think this is ultimately where 5G takes a sort of next step to what I view as the next three to five years. That's key to the Cupertino growth story. And I, I view this kind of going to that hall of fame of upgrades comparable to iPhone 6. But as I said, I think it's a once in a decade opportunity for Cook. Danny, you're an iPhone user. Yes, we are a are core iPhone household. <laughs> are you going to upgrade or are you going to be one of those 20 to 30 percent fence sitters? I'm not a fan. I'll be uh, pre-ordering <laughs> the, the the Pro Max because to me, Julia, it speaks to, you know, I like the specs that I'm seeing, the faster processing technology. And I view 5G 
as really the start of the, of really a transformational upgrade cycle. And for me personally, that's enough to get me to upgrade. Yeah, you know, I'm still one of those people that puts the finger over the lens when they take pictures with their iPhone. So I think I'll stick with mine, but good to know. Dan Ives, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities there. All right, for more on this, Verizon CEO Hans Vestberg will join us later in the show to talk about that 5G technology. So don't miss that. All right, to China now, carrying out mass coronavirus testing in one of its biggest cities. Officials in Qingdao say they have conducted 8.2 million tests in just three days. This comes after 12 COVID cases were found over the weekend following the Golden Week holiday. More than 630 million people in China travelled away from home during Golden Week. David Culver is live in Beijing for us. David, I was pausing and deliberating there over some of the numbers. The scale of response from the authorities in the face of all that travel and relatively so few cases says everything to me. Julia, it's massive scale. I mean, when you talk about a city that's larger than New York and they're determined to test every single resident, according to health officials, yeah, it's a lot of people. More than 8 million, they say, that they have already tested. Of that 8 million, they've got roughly half of the samples processed, and they say those are negative results. So they say there are no new cases beyond the dozen or so that initially surfaced. Now, there's a lot of skepticism that's always met with the official reporting out of China. And even one virologist who CNN spoke with, my colleague Christy Lou Stout spoke with this virologist who suggested that this type of batch testing, because that's what they're doing here essentially, it's pooled testing where they'll do multiple people and they'll do one run with say 10 or so individuals in that. And if that comes back positive, they would then run individuals on each of those samples. So this pool testing, while they say it's efficient, Chinese government that is, for this type of size of, of city, the virologist that we spoke with suggested it's not. It's a waste of resources, even, is how he characterized it. However, China's moving forward with it. They stand by it, and they've done it before. We saw it in Wuhan when they tested all 12 million residents of that city. We saw it here in Beijing in June where they tested hundreds of thousands. And I actually went to one of those mass testing sites, and it is rather impressive. It's quite organized and orderly, and it's also not an option. So people are brought there, and they have no choice but to go through with that. Anecdotally, we can also say, Julia, when you talk to folks who are on the ground in Qingdao, one of the things I wanted to understand was, is this just the official government numbers that are coming out and yet life perhaps is showing uh, a fear and anxiety? That does not seem to be the case. If you look at social media here and you talk to some of the people who are in Qingdao, it seems as though life is continuing as normal. In fact, they did no compartmentalized lockdowns. Aside from the mass testing, it just is continuing on. And that's something that does speak a lot of, you know, really to how they're handling this and speaks loudly to uh, how they plan to do it in the future. But this is also going to be used by state media and Chinese officials to tout the containment effort. But a lot of people say this is, you know, an authoritarian government's approach to it. You know, can it be applied elsewhere? Remains to be seen. But the reality is people here in China and mainland China in particular, Julia, a lot of us feel as though we're in this bubble that does look like life pre-COVID. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? So many of the elements of this simply wouldn't work in nations elsewhere in the world, to your exact point. And uh, with regards to the data and the numbers, David Trust, but Verify Culver, thank you very much for joining us on the show, as always. (laughs) Thanks, Julia. Thank you.
These are some of the other stories making headlines around the world. At least 36 states in the United States are reporting an increase in new COVID-19 cases with hospitalizations rising nationwide. According to Johns Hopkins University, the country is averaging 49,000 new infections per day, with the worst acceleration in the Midwest and northern states. Meanwhile, Europe also grappling with a surge. Poland has recorded its highest daily new cases and deaths since the start of the pandemic. Germany is also reporting a sharp rise in cases. The Czech Republic and Northern Ireland are closing schools, pubs and restaurants to curb local outbreaks. In the United Kingdom, Prime Minister Boris Johnson rejecting calls for a short nationwide lockdown, opting instead for regional restrictions. On the coronavirus treatment front, meanwhile, drugmaker Eli Lilly says it's suspending its trial of an antibody treatment due to safety concerns. It follows Johnson & Johnson, which paused its clinical trial of a vaccine candidate. It said a participant developed an unexplained illness. Here's what the company's chief financial officer said about that on Quest Means Business. Uh, we don't know even at this point whether that individual is in the placebo arm or the vaccinated arm. Uh, and we just have to do a little bit more diligence through the independent uh, external panel before we can make any conclusive decisions going forward. But again, in speaking with our scientific team, especially for a study that's this large, 60,000 patients, to have an adverse event or two unexpectedly is, is not uncommon. Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Elizabeth, we've talked about this before. Not unusual in these kind of trials. Safety first. What more do we know? Uh, what we know so far is that of the four trials that have started in the U.S., two are currently on pause. Julia, let's take a look at this big picture. So Johnson & Johnson, as we were just discussing, that one is on pause. That pause is new. AstraZeneca, that trial has been paused for more than a month, and we are not sure why it is taking so long to come to a decision. Should it go back on? Should it be discontinued? Uh, Moderna, they started their trial on July 27th. They have not paused. Pfizer, they have started July 27th. They started July 27th, and they are also still going. And of course, there are other vaccines around the world. Now, as you mentioned, these things do happen. Sometimes a participant gets sick. There are tens of thousands in each trial. But what's important to know is that this does not happen with every trial, as we've just seen from this list. A participant has to get sick, and doctors who were running the trial have to be convinced that there's a possibility that it was because of the vaccine. For example, to be silly, if a participant gets a vaccine one day and the next day gets a mammogram and it shows a breast cancer, you're not going to stop the trial down for that. The breast cancer had nothing to do with the vaccine. That breast cancer was there long before the person got vaccinated. So it's not just any illness that stops a trial or that pauses a trial. It's an illness where doctors are concerned it might be connected to the vaccine. Does it happen? Yes. Is it the standard? No. It's it's not the standard. It doesn't usually happen. Yeah, the critical element here, unexplained. Um, actually, Elizabeth, right. what you were mentioning there about AstraZeneca, very interesting to me, because my understanding, it's been on pause in the United States since September 8th. But in the UK, the trials restarted. Why would we have a situation where one country still has it on hold and another country doesn't? 
You know, I have asked that questions of uh, British and European and U.S. regulatory authorities, and I can't get a straight answer. I've also asked that question repeatedly of AstraZeneca. Basically, the way it looks is that each country has their own standards and their own process. Again, when someone gets sick, you have to say, ask several questions. Are they the only one who got sick? Are they the, are they the only one who got sick like this, who had this set of symptoms or this particular diagnosis? And what's the, you know, how common is this illness? If this happens a lot, maybe it's not such a big deal. And so coming to that decision, trying to figure out, was this because of the vaccine or wasn't it? Different groups of experts might have different opinions. It appears that that maybe is what's happening in the UK versus the US. In the UK, in really just a matter of days, they decided it was safe to continue. In the US, one could say there being more conservative. It has been weeks and they still have not decided whether it's safe to continue. Fascinating, isn't it? I guess where trust is everything in this country, we know we have a real challenge, a relative real challenge. So Mm -hmm. they have to be really sure. Elizabeth Cohen, great to have your insights as always. Thank you. All right, you're watching First Move. There is plenty more to come. Stay with us. We're back up to this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. futures are strengthening ahead of the opening bell and a nice jump pre-market for Goldman Sachs. The banking giant up almost 2.5% after reporting pretty blowout Q3 results. Let's be clear, earnings almost doubling, driven by strong results from their trading desks and the investment banking division. Revenues, meanwhile, at Bank of America came in light, but the amount of money that the bank set aside for credit losses came in well below previous quarters. Meanwhile, Wells Fargo's earnings missed expectations, but they too reported lower provisions for potential credit losses. John Protridis joins us now. He's portfolio manager at Tocqueville Asset Management. Great to have you with us, sir, on the show. What do you make of earnings season so far? To me, my strongest takeaway is if you have other things outside of the consumer banking division, you've been held up pretty well this quarter. Yeah, I think your read is exactly right. And and those companies that are beating on the top line, beating expectations on sales and on earnings per share, their stock prices are going up. And those that are mixed, uh, the stocks are going down. Uh, you know, my read through 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 the banks collectively is, and you nailed it right on the head, if you have a diversified business model that's away from traditional banking, you're hanging in pretty well. But the, the, the loan loss provisions that are coming in significantly less than analyst expectations, that's a good thing. That means that the CARES Act provided enough liquidity and that the economy is, is rebounding enough that the bank, that the amount of provisions, the sandbags, as you will, that the banks are putting out to protect against the hurricane are less. And uh, you're, you're seeing those come down dramatically. Um, so, so I think the read through for the banks, listen, expectations for the banks have been nothing. I mean, you know, it's hard to uh, get hurt. It's hard to get hurt falling out of the basement window. You know, I mean, this is the second worst performing sector in the S&P 500, only behind energy. And, uh, you know, for this to turn around, you really need two things. You need uh, a second stimulus package to get put through and you need really, uh, you know, the, the, the vaccine to get announced and distributed to the masses. Oh, you mentioned some great points there. I was about to say, and I do just want to talk about the sandbags. 
um, as you quite rightly called them. I mean, JP Morgan yesterday, those earnings were pretty incredible as well, defying gravity. But it, it came down to um, what you saw in terms of their corporate and investment bank in particular with people mm-hmm. rushing to, to raise money. But Jamie Dimon did say $34 billion worth of reserves should they be required. So when you've got that amount of cash set aside or at least available, um, do you really need to be provisioning for more cash? You know, it's a great question. And I mean, the banks have been regulated uh, post the, the financial crisis of 12 years ago to have stockpiles of cash on their balance sheet, to have stockpile of reserves. I mean, every bank you're seeing all of their their uh, capital ratios that the Federal Reserve and the government require them to have on their balance sheet have actually gone up. I mean, they were protected for the hurricane coming into this. Um, so the the question is, once the economy uh, starts to rebound, and and you know, assuming that you believe that COVID is not here in permanence, that hopefully, Julia, nine months from now. Uh, when we have a, you know, our, when we're looking at or a year from now that you and I are both have the vaccine, um, that we all feel more comfortable and the idea of a social distance economy shrinks and we want to go out and spend money more and, and go back to what life was, you know, back in January and February, the banks are going to unleash all of this capital. Uh, they're not going to be under uh, the, 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 the foot of the Federal Reserve as much as they are currently as we get through this mm. storm. And guess what's going to happen at that point? Inflation expectations are going to go up because the economy is cranking again. And that's going to have the Fed apply less quantitative easing. They're going to print less money, which means interest rates are probably going to go higher, which again spells good things for the banks. So yeah, well, um, we can reconvene so, on so that conversation about- in 2025, I think, quite frankly, with the <laughs> inflation. I'm right. sorry, we've got a long way to go, my friend. I do just want to ask you something that you said to me last time, though, and that was that what would be best for stocks? And I appreciate your point that the vaccine's critical here. And actually, Goldman Sachs made the point earlier today that the vaccine's more important than earnings. It's more important than elections. But you said split government would be better for U.S. stocks. Do you still believe that in light of everything that we've seen? Or do you think stocks are perhaps pricing in a different scenario here? Yeah, yeah. So, so I do believe if it's a Biden presidency, uh, and this is not a political statement, again, this goes back mm. to how I think the stock market will react. If it's a Biden presidency and the Republicans hold the Senate, I do think that is the stock market will, will react favorably to that scenario because Biden has been very open about wanting to raise the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28%. If you increase taxes on, on companies and, they're, and, and they have to increase their earnings per share, well, they just have this massive headwind. How are they going to have to increase earnings? They're going to have to increase their sales or cut expenses. And when you cut expenses, what are you going to probably do? You're going to probably gonna lay, have to lay people off. So if you have a split government, it prevents, um, it's not as easy for the Biden administration to pass through that corporate tax thing. And there, there are other things that the Biden administration has possibly kicked around. And this is, you know, possibly increasing um, the uh, capital gains tax rate when you sell a stock in your taxable account or, and or even removing, you know, the step up in cost basis the, when you're doing estate planning um, uh, for, for, again, for stocks held in taxable accounts. All of those things if they do come through, are not good if you own stocks, uh, mm. just structurally. So, so, so I, that's why I think there could be short-term headwind uh, if it's a democratic sweep. Interesting. But it does raise the likelihood that they can uh, 
break the stimulus deadlock, quite frankly, John. But we're out of time, so uh, we will have this conversation. We will continue uh, at a later point. John Pratreed, it's great to have you with us, as always. Portfolio Manager for Tocqueville Asset Management. Great to be with you. All right, after the break, Tim Cook's guest at the Apple launches. Our next guest, Verizon CEO Hans Vestberg, is talking super fast. Welcome back to First Move. In U.S. stock markets are up and running this Wednesday. The major averages pushing a little higher, well, a little bit, despite a new disappointment from Washington. A comprehensive emergency aid bill for ailing businesses and cash-strapped Americans is looking less likely than ever before the election. A mixed picture for U.S. banks in early trading, too. Shares of Goldman Sachs rising after its golden quarter profits almost doubling in Q3. But for the likes of Wells Fargo and Bank of America, we're seeing some softness, as you can see. Their results continue to get hit by weak loan demand. Apple's new iPhones are billed as a leap forward in speed with 5G, but that won't mean anything without network coverage. Verizon says it's built a 5G nationwide network for 200 million people in the United States and a faster ultra-wideband serving parts of 55 U.S. cities as well as 43 stadiums and arenas. Just to give you a sense, the nationwide service is shown in the deep red blobs on this Verizon map, while the ultra-fast areas are the red circles that you can see. The rest is mostly 4G LTE. Hans Vesberg is chairman and CEO of Verizon and joins us now. Great to have you on the show, sir. When I think about 5G, I always think about a trade-off between the low and the high spectrum. And you compromise range in order to get greater speed. Tell me what you mean when you say 5G just got real, because that was your big statement yesterday. No, I think that for us, uh, I think we have been building our, our network uh, for the last couple of years here. Of course, with a foundation of the best 4G network in the nation, uh, that's the foundation. Then we have built our ultra-wideband, which has uh, 10x, 20x better performance than our 4G, which is best in the nation. We build that, as you say, in the urban places, stadiums, etc., where the majority of all the traffic are, so we can both get the performance, but also see that the 4G performance is better for the 4G user. On top of that, yesterday we also launched our nationwide 5G, which is on a low band spectrum. That means that it has uh, much more coverage, but a little bit less of performance. That's what we have done. So basically, we have now the full map. And what's happening, of course, is that when Apple comes out with a 5G phone with so many iPhone users in the United States, that's really when it happens for the consumers, the 5G for consumers happening. So that's why it was a big event yesterday, and our partnership with Apple has has been super important for us to continue to develop our technology and having partners supporting our uh, uh, network uh, strategy. Define what little bit less means in that case when we're talking about the low band network, because is 4G going to feel better than the old 4G? And how much of an improvement is there going to be uh, when we're talking about 5G? Because the skeptics are already leaping on you and saying, hang on a second, actually 5G is going to feel much like 4G for much of the nation. 
First of all, we need to remember R4D is fantastic and it's uh, award-winning. <laughs> we won win the root metrics the last 14 years. So, so, of course, that's a really great base to compare to. The 5D we'll have when it comes to nationwide is going to be similar in the beginning, but that's just the beginning of the 5D area. How we then can stack on new things on top of it and I'm not going to be too technical and then you can start doing differences with slices of the network, etc. That's the nationwide. But again, the ultra Wideband is a totally different dimension of how 5G can perform with the low latency, capacity, and speed uh, in the urban places. So that sort of model we have built is, of course, something we want to give to our consumers and our customers to use the 5G network from now on. You know, as you quite rightly point out, these two things are, are very, very different. How long does it take and do we ever see full convergence? Because I guess the hope is that at some point we'll be able to have that faster speed 5G technology when the infrastructure's there all over the country. Will we see that one day or is that probably never going to happen? No, that's going to happen. But we also need to understand the customer base uh, of Ryzen is everything from 3G to 4G to 5G customers. Yeah. We need to see that we have the best network and all of them. So remember, I mean, the, the, the market predictions or forecasts from external parties, how many will have a 5G phone in five years from now, is basically 50% of the base in the US will have a 5G phone. And think about 4G, that took quite a long time before everyone has a 4G phone as well. So remember, you need to manage it all in order to have the best experience for all your customers. And as the nation's biggest wireless uh, supplier, we of course need to see that and that's what we're going to have. But clearly, 5G users are going to move on from here and be better and better. You know, we recently spoke to the Microsoft CEO and the Lando Lakes CEO, Beth Ford, and they were saying that there are 21 million families in particularly in rural communities in the United States that simply don't have broadband access. And everything that we've seen in the last seven months has accelerated the digital divide for those that do have access, whether it's education or working from home versus those that don't. Is there more that can be done or is the risk that actually what we're doing here with 5G technology accelerates the divide that we already have and have seen widen in the last seven months? I don't think that the 5D is doing uh, that acceleration, but I think that our society today is more uh, rely, rely more and more on the, di the digitalization because we need to do uh, education, we need to do healthcare and all other important society things at the same time. We need to do that uh, wirelessly or wirelessly. Uh, so that so, uh, is, is increasing. So I think we are doing quite a lot. I mean, we have now uh, starting this semester, we have 38 million students that we are connecting uh, so they can actually do uh, schooling from home uh, or from the, from the university in 40 states. So we are doing everything we can to see that's happening. And remember, there are three things we need to discuss in the digital divide. That accessibility to the broadband, affordability, as well as usability. And usability is, is their content that you can use as well. And I, I think that we all the time need to be very specific, which are we solving for? And I think the, the accessibility, we're, we're just moving out the networks more and more. And, and of course, uh, Verizon is the most scaled uh, operator in, in, in the US when it comes to wireless and reaching more people than any other, any other carrier. So we are there, but then it's also affordability and then uh, usability of, of devices applications for healthcare, for education, etc. that is Hans. so important to bridge the digital divide. 
I mean, you raise so many great points about the way that we have to think about this. Do you need more government support? Because you're a, you're a company that has to focus on profitability. It may never make sense financially to build infrastructure in some of these regions. If the government doesn't help and provide support, financial support too, it will never happen. Is this part of what's required as well at this moment? I think we see that already. I mean, remember, building the networks we, we're doing from the private sector. Then, of course, affordability is something we need to collaborate with. And then, of course, applications is very much owned by the government, especially when it comes to education. In certain areas, of course, healthcare is private and application there. So it has to be a collaboration. And many of the biggest challenges we have on Earth today, where you really need private and public sector coming together to, to solve them. But clearly, mobility, broadband and cloud is the foundation to solve some of the larger challenges we have right now when it comes to inequalities. Yeah. Hans, fantastic to have you on the show and congratulations on uh, the announcement with Apple. Exciting times. Hans Vestberg, the CEO and Chairman of Verizon there. Thank you. All right. Calculating the gigantic cost of the coronavirus pandemic, we speak to one of the authors of a study that put a figure on paper and it's not pretty. Details up next. Welcome back to First Move. $16 trillion. That's an estimated cost of the coronavirus pandemic in the United States alone. It's equivalent to 90% of the country's annual GDP. And according to the study by two Harvard professors published in a leading medical journal, that's an optimistic estimate. It's based on a projection that the pandemic will be substantially contained by the fall of next year. David Cutler is one of the authors of the study. He's also a professor of economics at Harvard University, and he joins us now. David, fantastic to have you on the show. It is $16 trillion over the course of a decade. I do want to be clear, but I think the breakdown of the costs here is also important. The first one, $7.6 trillion, which comes down to reduced economic output over the next 10 years compared to where we would have been. I definitely noticed that's correct and those are estimates that come from sort of consensus forecasts like in this case the congressional budget office but they're consistent with other wall street and other analysts of what will the (laughs) pandemic mean they forecast a very very slow recovery in labor markets and product markets and so output below its potential for the next decade at least and half of this price tag is $8.6 trillion, and that's driven by the long-term implications and costs for those who actually contract COVID-19. But you've also put a statistical estimate on, estimate on loss of life, which is $7 million. Can you just explain sort of how you came to, to some of those numbers as well? Because I think they will raise eyebrows. Yes. So there are really three health impairments that we take account of. One is premature mortality. Second is long-term health consequences of individuals who survive COVID, but will have some share will have respiratory and cardiac symptoms. And then third is mental health impairments, where as much as 40% of the US population is reporting symptoms of anxiety or depression. A year ago, it was about 10% of the population. So it's gone up roughly a third of the adult population now says they have symptoms of anxiety or depression that they did not. In each of those cases, you need to take a health impairment and value it in dollars. So there's actually a very well-established methodology for doing that. It's used in environmental context. For example, how much is it worth to clean up 
uh, polluted water or uh, air sites. It's used in health contexts. How much should a country be willing to pay for a new drug that does a certain uh, amount for people who are sick? And it's based on what's called valuing a statistical life, which is how much are people willing to pay in order that their risk of something bad happening to them is reduced by some amount. So risk of something bad on the job, risk of something bad while driving, risk of something bad in their home. And those numbers are then used to say, okay, therefore, how do we value the risk of something like COVID? I understand. So, but just to be very clear, when we're talking about the mental health risks, and you mentioned 10% of the country feeling anxiety, and that's gone to 40%. This is not as a result of contracting COVID. This is simply the result of lockdown, of the anxiety, of fear of catching a virus, of the isolation. It's, it's the other aspects of, of what we've suffered and are suffering. That's correct. That's yeah. correct. This is lockdown. This is fear of losing a job, fear of not being able to pay medical or, uh, or uh, rent or housing bills right. or buy food or groceries fear that one's loved ones will contract COVID and die of COVID and one won't be able to do anything. So all of those things are adding to population anxiety and depression. What I didn't see measured in this report, David, and you can tell me if, uh, if you've modelled for it, is the impact of not providing more stimulus, more financial aid versus providing more financial aid, which is clearly very much tied to that point. And we don't need to talk about the politics, which is pretty toxic. But have you modelled the impact <laughs> of not doing more? Yes. Not doing more versus doing more. Yeah, uh, we, we haven't modelled that explicitly. You're correct. The forecasts from the Congressional Budget Office have something built into them that way. If we were to fall short of what the recovery would look like and the um, and and uh, and Washington takes no actions, that would both increase the economic cost enormously as well as increase the health consequences and the economic costs coming through that. Conversely, if we were to act in a way that would be responsible, then we could cut the the costs in terms of lost output over the long term and cut the health impairments. So really, these are not kind of immutable numbers that can't change, but they could be responsive to very good policy if we could get that policy to happen. Yeah, I mean, there's so much of that required. One of your other big bleak assumptions is a triple of loss of life, a total of 625 premature deaths in the United States, according to this study. David, it was um, heartbreaking to read, but very important too. And it's a short report. I'll tweet it out. David Cutler, thank you for joining us. Professor of Economics at Harvard My University. pleasure. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Thank you. All right, still ahead. We'll go live at to Capitol Hill. It's not stimulus negotiations. It's the second day of questioning now underway for Donald Trump's controversial Supreme Court nominee. We'll go there next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. Senators have one final chance to grill Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee today before her almost certain confirmation. A second day of questioning is underway as we speak. Amy Coney Barrett says she has no preconceived agenda, but Democrats are warning about abortion rights, gay marriage, even the future of health care could be at stake. Sunland Safati is on Capitol Hill and joins us now. Sunland, great to have you with us. Highlights so far and what should we expect from today's hearing? 
Yeah, Julia, yeah, second day of hearing of this questioning session following yesterday's, yesterday's marathon, 11 hours that Justice Barrett, uh, excuse me, Judge Barrett faced questioning. Uh, today we expect a lengthy session as well. Uh, each senator will have 20 minutes to give her questions, uh, a lengthy question and answer session over the course of the day. Then they'll go in a closed session where they'll discuss her background check. That is something that's very ca customary for a Supreme Court nominee. But what we have seen so far since the, the hearing has been underway today for about an hour is, again, Democrats focusing squarely on the Affordable Care Act, focused squarely on the Health Care Act and how she potentially could rule given that there is uh, this case that is going to go up in front of the Supreme Court about a week after Election Day. Uh, we saw the ranking member, Dianne Feinstein, in her first round of questionings really focus on the ACA. And in a preview conference call this morning, Democrats uh, really, again, telegraphed that their strategy here is, in their words, to show that she would have incredibly broad consequences uh, if she were to be confirmed as the Supreme Court uh, Justice. Now, as far as the timeline after today, this will be the last time that we will hear from Judge Barrett in this sort of open session. Tomorrow, uh, the committee will hear from outside witnesses, uh, and then after that, the committee will vote likely uh, potentially early next week, although that has not been firmly set yet by the committee. And that sets up a full Senate floor vote for later this month. And Julia, as we've talked about before, this is in line with what Republicans have been driving to since Amy Coney Barrett has been nominated by President Trump, driving to get her seat sat on the court as a Supreme Court justice before Election Day. Julia? Sunland Safati in Washington. Thank you so much for that update there. All right. And finally, a very special and romantic merger to discuss on First Move. I just want to say a huge congratulations to two very dear colleagues and friends, our very own Richard Quest and First Move producer Chris Pepper got married this weekend. It wasn't what they initially planned, but it was still beautiful. And on behalf of the entire team, we wish you endless happiness, joy and sparkle in your future lives together. What a beautiful picture. We heart you. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.